Girons should not be the only one in the United States, and not even the only one in Chicago. We know that Burge was not the first police officer to use torture techniques, and he's not the last. We need local communities to fight to ensure the collective memories of the policing behavior and serve as a resource for healing justice and reparations. Torture, policing, prisons, capitalism, and colonialism attempt to control and suppress the lives that we desire. Lives full of care, curiosity, reflection, intimacy. When Audre Lorde returned home after receiving breast cancer treatments, she wrote, At home I wept and wept and wept, finally, and made love to myself, endlessly and repetitively, until it was no longer tentative. Where were the dykes who had had mastectomies? I wanted to talk to a lesbian, to sit down and start from a common language, no matter how diverse. She credits the love and care of women for keeping her alive for as long as she lived, even women she did not know, and sometimes women she did not like. The support and self-determination reminds me of Deborah Danner. We seek and forge these communities of care and struggle and can provide them for others, too. These communities will be especially important to prepare for and politically resist what's ahead. As Sins Invalid explains, Each day the planet experiences human-provoked mudslides, storms, fires, devolving air quality, rising sea levels, new regions experiencing freezing or sweltering temperatures, earthquakes, species loss, and more, all provoked by greed-driven, human-made climate chaos. Our communities are often treated as disposable, especially within the current economic, political, and environmental landscape. Without resistance and organizing, the destruction of the planet will have catastrophic consequences on all of our bodies, minds, and souls. And the police help facilitate the destruction of the earth by advancing and facilitating the torture, displacement, ableism, and death that makes it easier for companies to make a profit from our communities. We must not let them. Eight, we only want the earth. Climate catastrophe scared me, phrase and phenomenon. A mere mention of global warming could fill my throat with pebbles and palms with sweat beads, like when I first learned about hell in the church basement near Lafayette Park during Sunday school as a kid. But hell felt better. It was in a speculative afterlife, and if it was a real place, God would not send me there as long as I confessed with my mouth and believed in my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead. If it was not real, then I would live a chaste life and die a decent person. By my early twenties, I realized that I could become a better Christian if I forfeited the idea of hell and heaven. I was no longer comforted by the belief that we had to endure suffering until we cross over into the afterlife. I wanted to end suffering now. My urgency increased to learn how. This required me to understand the physical world around me, including climate change. 
Unlike hell, it was not a matter of my faith or fear. I could not will it away nor repent. God could not save me from it. Rising temperatures would invite violence to our doorsteps. I knew this before learning anything about abolition or the changing earth. My grandmother had taught me. In St. Louis, she shared a grayish-brown concrete apartment porch with Ms. Yvonne, her neighbor to the West. The 90s and early 2000s were filled with their quiet feuds. For Thanksgiving, my grandmother displayed Happy Fall on her windows, and Ms. Yvonne put brown and orange turkey cutouts on hers. When Ms. Yvonne wrapped green Christmas lights around the peeling black steel banisters, my grandmother wrapped red ones on her side. Fourth of July was the worst. Ms. Yvonne put countless tiny flags in corners on each stair. My grandmother would answer by alternating red, white, and blue plastic table weights with shredded ends from the dollar store. Mail carriers and Jehovah's Witnesses feared the wrath of these women and carefully avoided knocking any decorations over on the way up. But they were allied for our safety. My grandmother would sit outside opposite Ms. Yvonne and say, It's getting hotter and hotter outside. Y'all better be careful. Ms. Yvonne would rock and nod in agreement. After warning me for so many years, she didn't have to explain anymore. Summer meant black joy, pleasure, stress, and death. Gunshots and heat strokes alongside games like freeze tag and kickball. The ice cream truck sold fruity bomb pops and played The Entertainer, the famous ragtime number that Scott Joplin composed in St. Louis. We chased lightning bugs whose neon bulbs lit the dust sky and the insides of our hands. I rarely see them now. Our apartments had central air conditioning, but we couldn't use it because we could barely afford the electricity bills. If we dared to re-enter the house when the A.C. was on, we forfeited going outside again that day. So everyone opened the windows and went outside to stay cool instead. On the hottest days, kids would play with water hoses and even fire hydrants if we were lucky. Union Electric Company completely cut down several of my favorite shady trees because the branches interfered with the electricity poles. I thought it was wrong because the trees were there first and that the electricity poles were interfering with the trees. Years later, I discovered that the tree cuttings, shootings, strokes, high bills, and disappearance of lightning bugs were something new under the sun. The planet was burning. To warn each other when cops were nearby, we'd say, The block is hot. Our block had literally become hotter, which led to violence, including by police. It was cyclical. Racial capitalism relegated black people to poor, overcrowded housing. We would go outside for space, air, and ironically, privacy. Police patrolled our relief using laws against loitering, trespass, and idleness, so back into the house we'd go until we needed temporary relief again. If the block continues to get hot, it might be even worse. By one prediction, in David Wallace Wells's The Uninhabitable Earth, 
Climate change in the United States would bring about an additional 22,000 murders, 180,000 rapes, 3.5 million assaults, and 3.76 million robberies, burglaries, and acts of larceny. Federal and local governments will consequently increase budgets for police and prisons to respond. Yet the problem will continue because cops will not and cannot stop the underlying causes of these waves of violence caused by the flood of corporate, state, and human pollution that warms the earth and poisons us. Heat bakes industrial chemicals and metals into our soil, water, plants, and animals. Paint on our homes and playgrounds peel and expose us to toxins that make us sick with preventable illnesses. Coastlines are swallowing islands due to melting ice caps and oceans filled with waste from crude oil and cruise lines. Rather than protecting us, laws will continue to protect the rights of companies to destroy the earth for profit. Cops will be the first responders to arrest activists who protest the destruction, detain displaced people seeking refuge, and jail homeless people who can no longer live in their homes because of climate gentrifiers. Coastal people who replicate their neighborhoods and inland communities by displacing locals. Fighting for abolitionist futures means that we have to undermine climate change and environmental degradation and resist policing and militarism as solutions to these problems. Climates, whether racial, economic, or environmental, have forced migration within U.S. history. All three shaped how my grandmother Virginia landed in St. Louis. My great-grandparents and grandmother were one family among the six million black people who moved from the South to the North, Midwest and West, between 1916 and 1970. Virginia's mother, Rosie, my great-grandmother, was born in 1918 in Arkansas, five years after Harriet Tubman died and two years before white women gained the right to vote. In 1936, at 17, she became pregnant with my grandmother and gave birth in Memphis, Tennessee. This era was marked by Jim Crow, Juan Crow, and Jane Crow, laws that legalized racial and gender segregation throughout the U.S. Police enforced these laws with the help of white residents, students, and business owners. Even celebratory functions remained segregated. Memphis still held on to cotton as a major crop in the 1930s, so much so that residents tried to revive the economy through a whites-only cotton carnival. Black people responded with their own version, Cotton Makers Jubilee. Neither was enough to stimulate the economy, and unemployment rose significantly around the time of my grandmother's birth. My family left to find work and flee white supremacy, they found labor in the factories above the Mason-Dixon line, where they worked until companies decided to move their operations overseas to more easily exploit black and brown workers in other countries. Jobs decreased and policing increased. Economist Elora Derenencourt found that cities with the largest flow of black migrants began increasing in the 1940s and continued for decades. Compared to cities with fewer black migrants, local governments and great migration cities spent a larger share of public expenditures 
on police, increased the number of cops, and increased incarceration rates. They did not increase public services such as firefighting, education, income-based programs, or jobs programs. Derenin Court explains that these political and economic spending decisions under the Great Migration contributes to 43% of the upward mobility gap between black and white men in the region today. Migration was not the problem. It was the local government's response. Police violence had also been catastrophic to poor white people. During the Great Migration, governments used cops to stop the mass migration of exploited white people fleeing environmental disaster and climate change. The Dust Bowls were one example. I have no idea how my great-grandmother Rosie survived being pregnant with my grandmother Virginia during the summer of 1936, which delivered some of the most severe temperatures in modern history and one of the deadliest ecological disasters in North America. Between June, July, and August, Tennessee had 46 days of temperatures, at least at 100 degrees, much higher than normal. By comparison, Florida, a much more southern state, only had five such days. That summer, 5,000 people across the country died due to a heat wave brought on by the Dust Bowls. Dust Bowl scenes mimicked Old Testament plagues. Men in cities cornered and clubbed to death hundreds of thousands of rabbits. Thousands of grasshoppers would swarm crops at a time. The government bought cattle from farmers as economic relief, but killed half of them because they could not be consumed by people. This heat wave was not simply a natural disaster, but a consequence of settler colonialism. According to meteorologist and climate specialist Jeff Baradelli, the federal government gifted or cheaply sold land to entice settlers to the Midwest. The settlers destroyed the deeply rooted native grasslands by setting up wheat and cattle farms to meet the demand for meat and bread. During droughts, the native grasslands usually maintained enough moisture to offset the heat in the summer. Settlers disrupted this environmental chain by harmful farming practices, and the Great Plains suffered when droughts hit during the 1930s because winds removed millions of tons of topsoil that had been covered by the grasslands. Thousands of people died from dust pneumonia, heat strokes, and more. Millions of people fled west to escape death and destruction. California criminalized poverty by passing state laws that banned people from entering who were poor and punished anyone living in California who tried to help climate migrants cross. Officials directed police and prosecutors to threaten and arrest migrants and their supporters. Police did what police do. L.A. Times journalist Cecilia Rasmussen reported, For a few months in 1936, the Los Angeles Police Department launched a foreign excursion of sorts, a bomb blockade on the state's borders, the LAPD deployed 136 officers to 16 major points of entry on the Arizona, Nevada, and Oregon lines, with orders to turn back migrants with no visible means of support. Some people paid the police everything they had to be let in. In 
thousands were denied entry. Police caught people on commercial trains and told them to either leave California or labor in the workhouse for six months. The American Civil Liberties Union sued Los Angeles to stop the police, and the city complied. A decade later, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Edwards v. California that states could not ban citizens from entering on the basis of poverty. Once again, these were not refugees fleeing Latin America, Asia, or Africa, but poor white U.S. citizens who California fought for the right to banish. The millions of people who experienced police violence and discrimination during the bomb blockade and beyond were internally displaced people, a category of climate migrants who are forced to move about inside a nation's borders due to environmental events as compared to refugees who normally move across borders and stateless people who are excluded from nation-states altogether. Dust bowls were the catastrophic event, and police were used as a solution to address the migration, even though arrests and detentions do not solve climate crisis nor cool the planet. Not only have the catastrophic climate events continued, they've become worse over the course of my grandmother's lifetime. The United Nations reports, hazards resulting from the increasing intensity and frequency of extreme weather events, such as abnormally heavy rainfall, prolonged droughts, Desertification, environmental degradation, or sea level rise and cyclones are already causing an average of more than 20 million people to leave their homes and move to other areas in their countries each year. Without concrete climate interventions, the World Bank estimates that more than 143 million people will become internally displaced by 2050 in the three regions most exploited by Western imperialism, Sub-Saharan South Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. This mass movement will shape public policy, conflict, militarism, and policing to control the flow of people, just as there had been during the Great Migration and the Dust Bowls. Organizing for abolition alongside climate justice is imperative because policing and carceral responses will continue to manage internally displaced people, especially black people, indigenous people, and people of color who are constantly displaced from colonialism, capitalism, and climate change. As in California during the Dust Bowls, in the U.S. during the Latin American migrant caravans, and in Europe during the drought and migrant crisis in Syria. Political leaders will discuss migration as a drain on a nation's resources. This scares the public over scarcity and leads to hostility, violence, and arrests toward people seeking help. Yet the actual resource problem is that governments permit and encourage companies to build massive wealth by exploiting the Earth's finite resources, and then permits them to use the profits to hoard food, land, and even time. Many black people have already been relegated to live near places that are especially susceptible to floods, droughts, and environmental toxins. Increasingly, pollution from humans and companies heats the planet, 
which melts polar ice caps and raise sea levels that encroach on native coastal communities who rely on the land for their livelihood. Low-income Black and Latinx people are more likely to live in neighborhoods prone to flooding following storms, as compared to white and Asian people. Atmospheric scientist Dr. J. Marshall Shepard cautions that Southern Black and rural residents might be more vulnerable to storms and tornadoes because they have fewer radars in their region to track the weather. In the West, these gaps disproportionately impact people who are Latinx and indigenous. Our most marginalized groups will lose acres upon acres of land because of corporate greed, and they will not be able to call the police to stop this massive theft. Growing up in the Midwest, I was used to tornado drills as a child. At school, we'd rush into the hallways, and those who could kneeled on the floor with our hands covering our heads. At home, we'd run into the basement in case a twister toppled a tree on our apartment. In 2011, I had to recall all of these safety measures while attending a summer leadership program for women interested in public policy and politics. We had a special lunch at the governor's mansion in the state capital, Jefferson City and his wife sat at a table across from mine. A host welcomed us and introduced the dozens of men wearing sharp tuxedos who would be serving our food and cleaning our tables. They were in prison. Since 1871, Missouri prisoners have worked for the governor's families by providing laundry, cleaning, catering, and whatever the job demands. The women in the room clapped and remarked on how well-mannered the men were. I could not help but to think how enslaved these men were. I'm sure the time out of prison may have been a break or even something they looked forward to, but the exploitation of their labor was worse than the optics of so many black men serving tables full of upwardly mobile white women. Then the tornado warning came. At moment's notice, the governor's wife was rushed away by security and our leadership academy was rushed to the basement. Just a couple of days before, one of the deadliest and most financially damaging tornadoes had just hit nearby Joplin, Missouri. Thousands of homes and businesses were flattened. By the time we were in the basement, we were still under a state of emergency from the devastation. President Obama did the commencement speech at the high school graduation the following year to commemorate the devastation and triumph in the community. We left the basement without any incident that time around. After Joplin's tornado, the governor, local leaders, and the president repeatedly assured us that we are all in this together. In spirit, this is mostly true. Donations, volunteers, and gifts pour in from across the country to ensure that people who have lost everything will at least have some relief. Yet disaster recovery is disproportionate. It mimics the inequality that capitalism creates. Researchers have found that the more natural hazard damages accrue in a county, the more wealth white residents tend to accumulate, all else equal. Blacks, on the other hand, tend to lose wealth as local hazard damages increase. 
white disaster survivors in places like Joplin, where the population is nearly 85% white, accumulate more wealth than black disaster survivors. And even more wealth. Increased wealth for white people could increase access to relief, such as housing, school, health care, and clean air. And decreased wealth for black people following disastrous storms could equate to precarious living arrangements, employment, and health outcomes. The disproportionate financial outcomes have carceral consequences. The precarious lives and downward mobility of internally displaced black migrants increase their contact with cops during times of survival. In addition to dust storms and tornadoes, preventable fires create internally displaced migrants in the U.S. By the time my grandmother was eight years old, the federal government had created one of the most recognizable advertisement campaigns in the U.S., Smokey Bear. Only you can prevent forest fires. I remember the soft brown bear with the judgmental finger from my youth, too. Like deserts, swamps, and oceans, forest fires only existed on television for me, my mom, and my grandmother living in the Midwest. Still, even I felt an obligation. Sociologist Carrie Marie Norgard explains that the campaign was used to deter fires and as propaganda to protect capitalists who wanted to cut down acres upon acres of timber to sell. Trees provide shade and absorb carbon dioxide to keep the planet cool. The losing trees to corporations warms the planet. Fires threatened their business, and their business of cutting down trees caused more fires. So Smokey Bear was a sort of colonization campaign to discourage indigenous peoples from setting fires to the land where trees could be sold for profit. Since 1850, California had banned ritualistic and cultural burnings of forest land by tribes— before these burnings were criminalized, tribes had set small intentional fires to clear decaying parts of the forests that were likely to catch fire later in dry seasons. These burnings controlled fires and decreased the kind of wild raging fires that now occur every year on the West Coast. Corporations in the state helped destroy the forest and threatened indigenous peoples with arrest and jail for trying to save it. More than 12,000 years of native land management systems and environmental flourishing nearly all went up in flames. I did not know this history until I read a 2017 New York Times article about California's prison labor problem. In February of that year, the state paid 4,000 prisoners less than $2 an hour to extinguish wildfires. Then-State Attorney General Kamala Harris's office opposed the early release of prisoners due to overcrowding because it would severely impact fire camp participation, a dangerous outcome while California is in the middle of a difficult fire season and severe drought. When Harris herself found out about the argument, she told the lawyers in her office to stop using it to oppose the release, but not to oppose the release itself. The argument was cruel, but not as cruel as creating other politically palatable arguments to keep people locked inside.
especially when prisons were already 200% beyond capacity. So first, California created a problem by outlawing an indigenous tradition to save forests. California and the federal government exacerbated their own problem by permitting companies to cut down millions of trees that contributed to fires. Then, instead of solving the underlying problems of deforestation and capitalism, California responded by putting a cute bear on television and capitalizing on its exploding prison population to force laborers to handle the fires. The failure of state and federal fire suppression only started forcing officials to decolonize their land management practices and decriminalize some intentional burnings in 2019. Yet as of this writing, organizers are still demanding that California stop using prison labor for firefighting. Hurricane Katrina's climate migrants were policed and incarcerated, a sharp contrast from the we're all in this together that I witnessed later for Joplin. When I reported on Hurricane Katrina as a high school student in JROTC, it was called a natural disaster. The major story then was that the government had built insufficient levees to stop the flood. It would be almost 15 years before I learned from scientists that the hurricane's impact was also a consequence of climate change and environmental degradation. Burning fossil fuels and heating the planet melted ice caps and dramatically raised sea levels. When French settler colonists landed in Louisiana, they destroyed wetlands that absorbed and prevented flooding. Oil companies further destroyed the Gulf, and engineers built on top of disappearing native land, which sank half of New Orleans below sea level. The combination of colonialism and capitalism leads to increased sea levels, extra water for high winds to carry, more flooding into black neighborhoods that were already prone to flooding, and fewer wetlands to stop it. Five days into the disaster, the state built a makeshift jail as a real start to rebuilding New Orleans. Police primarily arrested people for looting. The warden of the jail remarked, They might spit on you. They might have AIDS. A looter to me is no different than a grave robber. For six weeks, police managed the crisis by arresting people and accusing them of car theft, curfew violations, and public intoxication. Some people saved themselves from the flooding jail cells and escaped. Police caught others and turned them back. Organizers responded, too. Even though Katrina had destroyed Critical Resistance's Southern Regional Office, they still organized and demanded amnesty for more than a thousand people who had been arrested in the first six weeks after the storm. CR reported that thousands of prisoners were either left in their cells to drown or sent to 35 prisons across the country. CR demanded amnesty in hopes that no one should be arrested, charged, tried, sentenced, fined, imprisoned, jailed, detained, involuntarily relocated or deported. In addition to amnesty, CR had three other demands. They challenged the use of the prison industrial complex in the disaster. 
while structural disasters, such as racism and poverty, continue to be ignored. They challenged the imprisonment of people whose cases had been impacted by Katrina, and they publicized the dangers of rebuilding New Orleans on top of jails and military-occupied streets. Lawyers also resisted the simultaneous environmental devastation and police violence in New Orleans. I listened to Colette Pichon Battle speak at a Law for Black Lives conference in 2015 at Riverside Church. She was a D.C. corporate lawyer who went to Louisiana, where she was from, to volunteer in the aftermath of the hurricane for a few weeks. She eventually quit her job and became a climate activist. Battle demanded pay for the capitalist ventures that destroyed the earth. Pay for the black people whom the New Orleans Police Department killed. And pay from the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office, which, in the middle of the storm, as people literally tried to leave the city to get away from the water that was slowly rising, had deployed armed sheriffs on the bridge of the Crescent City Connection, telling people that they could not get out, and they sent them back into Orleans Parish. She concluded her speech by demanding federal recognition for the United Homa Nation, an indigenous tribe in Louisiana. The government, she explained, does not recognize them because the tribe is entitled to land full of oil and natural gas. Her rad talk made all the connections at the intersection of abolition, anti-capitalism, decolonization, and racial justice. When police make arrests in the wake of environmental and climate destruction, they put people in jails and prisons that are also sites of environmental devastation and climate violence. In 2018, I met organizer Jordan Mazurik from the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons, FTP, a collective that uses grassroots organizing, advocacy, and direct action to challenge the prison system on the grounds of environmental justice and earth liberation. We were speakers at a Students for Prison Education and Reform, SPEAR, at Princeton. At the FTP session, Jordan called a currently incarcerated member of the campaign, Bryant Arroyo, to discuss their joint organizing efforts at SCI Mahoney in Pennsylvania. Arroyo, whom Mumia Abu-Jamal has called the first jailhouse environmentalist, spoke of the toxins surrounding the building full of cages and flowing through the water at the prison. Jordan echoed this point, explaining that governments build prisons near and on top of hazardous waste sites because the land is cheap to buy. People who are detained in toxic jails and prisons risk diseases, cancers, and death as a consequence and often guaranteed outcome of their confinement. And remarkably, Bryant had led a campaign from behind bars that successfully stopped the construction of a coal and liquid gas refinery adjacent to the prison. Unlike free world climate migrants who can attempt to leave dangerous conditions, Incarcerated people obviously face considerable obstacles and punishment if they attempt to make demands, and especially if they attempt to leave prison. 
So instead, many of them organize against the conditions inside, alongside campaigns, while fight toxic prisons organize on the outside to close carceral facilities and to prevent new ones from opening. As the FTP Collective puts it, every prison is toxic. Whether environmentally toxic to the people inside it and the land on which the prison is built, or socially toxic to our communities deemed disposable by capitalism, white supremacy, and settler colonialism, and thus targeted by the criminal punishment system. It was only three months later that I understood the context for rising water during my work trips to Puerto Rico. I had not viewed the island as, in effect, a modern-day colony until the year before when I visited Martinique. My Airbnb host had explained that the small French island is a colony where the black inhabitants work and the white French party. I felt this as soon as I headed to the beach. The restaurant staff were always black. The customers, except for me and my friend Christina, were usually white. Our host said that some of the local black people took pride in having French passports, even if it meant not having local democracy or self-determination. Not her. She seemed indifferent to French patriotism and was more saddened that highly educated black Martinicans, like her son, left for France, only to find menial work. The mediocre white French come here and thrive, unfortunately. And that's when I realized that Puerto Rico was not a U.S. territory, but rather a colony where the people, land, and resources were drained. Territory sounds more neutral than colony. Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, not territories, but colonies. I asked AP if Puerto Rico could become one of my work sites because I wanted to support organizers on the island and learn more about policing in the current colonial context. Puerto Rico has several law enforcement agencies with overlapping jurisdictions. The Puerto Rico Police Department, PRPD, is the island's main local law enforcement agency and operates as a state or national police force. In 2011, PRPD had approximately 17,000 police officers, which made it the second largest force after the New York Police Department. Today, the department has plummeted to a figure that hovers around 12,000. The police have historically repressed activism with tear gas, beatings, and assassinations. AP agreed. I stayed at a very cute, small beachfront hotel and fell asleep to the sound of waves softly thumping against my room. When I woke up, I opened the shutters to search for the sun. Outside, to the left of my window, a concrete staircase led right into the ocean. Why would they build stairs that drop so suddenly? My co-worker Ricardo laughed sadly when I expressed confusion about the mystery steps. He said that the stairs used to lead to a wide, sandy beach. Now, that land was completely underwater. In an essay about resisting police violence and climate catastrophe, teenage activist Isabel Valentin wrote, Though no one ever said it, 
There was an unspoken understanding of what happens to small bodies of land surrounded by water when water levels rise too much. And when that body of land is inhabited by people of color like me, the situation is even more precarious for the archipelago's inhabitants. The Atlantic was drowning the hotel. Two hurricanes devastated the island before I went. Hurricane Irma technically missed, yet the wind still left more than a third of the island without power. Hurricane Maria landed. The death toll is underreported at more than 3,000 lives. Puerto Rico received a quarter of its annual rainfall in one day. This rain triggered floods, mudslides, and contamination of the drinking water. Scientists found that the hurricane produced the single largest maximum rainfall event since 1956 and that global warming changed the water and air temperatures to produce the hurricane. More than 200,000 people fled the island and will not likely return. What I found especially tragic is that the island's colonial status forces the local government to rely on U.S.-based fossil fuel companies that are responsible for global warming. Naomi Klein writes that the island gets an astonishing 98% of its electricity from fossil fuels, but since it has no domestic supply of oil, gas, or coal, all of these fuels are imported by ship. The whole behemoth is monstrously expensive resulting in electricity prices that are nearly twice the U.S. average. During Maria, Islanders lost power. Puerto Rico and the federal government relied on the police department to work overtime in the aftermath to attempt to quell the violence that occurred in the dark. But due to pay constraints, many cops refused. Normally, about 500 cops call in sick every day on the island. After Maria, it had risen to almost 3,000 cops every day. They did sick-in protests because the governments did not pay them for overtime to stop crime, primarily theft of generators and other resources for survival. Rather than spending the money on generators for the people, the governor of Puerto Rico paid tens of millions of dollars to compensate police for their labor. In the aftermath, the local government issued curfew and cops who continued to work made arrests for curfew violations and robberies. Jails and prisons flooded inside. During one of my trips, I learned that the prisons were deliberately placed on the coastlines. The government had no evacuation plan. During storms, prisons flood and people inside risk drowning and contamination from poisons, animals, and bugs that pour into the cells. The jail's lackluster response during the recent hurricanes especially threatened disabled incarcerated people who have to navigate the cell crowding tactics that prison officials use to move people to higher ground. At the Puerto Rico Federal Detention Center, one detained person explained that the toilets filled with human waste and could not be flushed for more than a week. Everyone was locked in their cells, and guards displayed a complete disregard for their health. When the water levels increased at night, detainees feared that they were going to drown. The power was out, 
During a surprise raid, prison guards entered cells and made detainees get on the floor. One detainee explained, Because every cell's floor was covered in feces and urine-infested water, most inmates were hesitant, and the ones who refused or stalled to get face down in the dirty water were either pepper-sprayed or shot at close range with a machine-gun-type weapon that fires rubber bullets. Several inmates were shot multiple times and had bleeding and severe bruising from the close proximity of the fired shots. So much pepper spray was used that every inmate was coughing, choking, and blinded. The cloud of pepper spray was so large that even the officers were coughing despite some of them wearing masks. No mercy was shown for my cellmate, who is a sick elderly man in his sixties and who is blind out of his glass eye. And like California, Texas, and Florida, government officials use prison labor to clean up debris on the roads and in communities after the storms. For me, critical resistances work in Louisiana, fight toxic prisons work across the country, and the incarcerated organizers in Puerto Rico illuminated a possibility to do abolitionist activism alongside climate justice. I thought that these campaigns would be wonderful entry points for people who care deeply about climate and environmental justice or disability justice, but are still curious or skeptical about abolition. They could find common ground that rejects police putting people in flooded cells during an environmental catastrophe, or that refuse allowing anyone to live or work on toxic waste sites. Because these issues and campaigns intersect with environmental justice, disability justice, and climate justice, activists who primarily organize in those fields can contribute to making the prison industrial complex obsolete. In St. Louis, many of the people held in toxic jails like the workhouse first lived in neighborhoods fixed with hazardous waste and pollution. My great-grandparents, Rosie and Odell, migrated northwest with my grandmother to St. Louis. During World War II, the black population in the city increased by 41%. It was also the only time in modern history when the globe temporarily cooled. Post-war industrialization in Europe and the United States was so immense that particles from the burning fossil fuels may have absorbed the sunlight for several decades. Aerosols cause cancers, asthma, and type 2 diabetes. When people ask abolitionists, what about the murderers? I wonder if they realize that climate change can kill us all, quickly and slowly. My grandmother was 12 years old when the Supreme Court decided Shelley versus Kramer in favor of a black St. Louis couple trying to buy a house in a white neighborhood. The decision ended the legal use of racial covenants nationally. Within two years, white people began a mass exodus from the city to the county. Over two decades, 60% of white people left St. Louis City. During this exodus, the federal government, in conjunction with cities and states, destroyed several thriving black communities to build highways. In 1955, a St. Louis board voted to destroy Mill Creek Valley, 
a vibrant Black neighborhood with homes, apartments, shops, stores, dance halls, and clubs. More than 20,000 Black people were displaced, and 40 churches were bulldozed. The construction made way for the highway that ran next to the apartments where my mother, grandmother, and I lived. These routes made it easier for the white suburban workers to drive to their jobs in the city over newly unemployed black people displaced by the construction. Highways are not neutral passageways, and the violence would reverberate in our bodies for generations to come. Traffic pollution causes asthma, lung impairment, cardiovascular diseases, and premature death. Cars unleashed lead into the air that was absorbed into black people's lungs, yards, parks, schools, and playgrounds. Middle and upper-class blacks fled next. My great-grandfather was a welder, and his sons, my grandmother's younger brothers, got jobs working at McDowell Douglas after they had been honorably discharged from the military. They moved to the county, Ferguson, Florissant, Bellefontaine neighbors. My grandmother could not afford it. She persevered in the crumbling city with her six children. She worked as a tailor at a clothing store for more than a decade and resigned because the men expected her to clean. Her resignation letter listed eight reasons for leaving, including filthy floors and toilets, lack of extermination for the pests and rodents, and mold and the falling plaster in the back room where she went to retrieve items for customers. She'd written that she had breathing problems inside the store and regularly fell ill. Her beautiful, sleek skin would break into hives and rashes. P.S., she wrote in cursive, I am a sales clerk, not a porter or maid. Black flight from St. Louis had been attributed to everything underperforming schools, rising crime rates, high unemployment. Racism, climate change, and environmental degradation also displaced black people. The highways, rising temperatures that contributed to rising crime, and the toxic conditions my grandmother detailed in her resignation letter. She had withheld rent for the same toxic conditions at home. Writing to the court in 1979, she criticized her landlord, a white woman who owned the multifamily unit a few blocks from Highway 70, for failure to keep the building up. My grandmother lived in the downstairs unit. Before she signed the lease, the landlord assured her that the apartment would be fixed, painted, decorated, and ready to move in. After my grandmother signed the lease, the landlord disappeared. When she left, she did not even give my grandmother her phone number or any contact information for anyone at all. For five years, my grandmother made all of the repairs that she could by herself. She fixed broken pipes that she had not burst, paid for painting to cover the peeling lead paint, and boarded floors and stairs to cover gaping holes. The upstairs unit was vacant yet unlocked. My grandmother chased out men and dogs sleeping there and boarded it up herself. When that unit's pipes broke, the water made my grandmother's kitchen ceiling cave and flooded her basement. The water sat there for three years. 
because the repairmen she called refused to drain the basement because of the poorly wired gas and electrical systems. In the letter, my grandmother wanted reimbursement for her expenses, injuries, stolen valuables, and labor. She also demanded compensation for embarrassment of odor from the basement, which could be smelled for a block away. The landlord had exploited my family's low wealth and race and created dangerous living conditions where they suffered for five years. Her negligence and misfeasance exposed my family to noxious fumes, lead, mold, and mildew. She only showed up to sue my grandmother for back payment of rent. My grandmother could not call the police on the landlord for any of this, but the landlord could call the sheriff to evict my grandmother. As Professor Shoup and Idacola explain, while the government focuses its attention on the violence that occurs from street crimes, it tends to ignore the violence that occurs from the chemical assault on the environment. More is lost in money and health through pollution than crimes of street violence, yet only the latter is defined officially as violence. This is also true of property ownership. The landlord had not only been negligent, but her inaction had been violent against the bodies of that home. My mother, grandmother, aunts, and uncles were always yelling at kids in the family about peeling paint and lead poisoning. This is partially why. They had grown up in homes that constantly assaulted their bodies and minds. It's not really as if they could simply move. In his I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. acknowledged that we cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. Lead and other toxins were all around them. Withholding rent, just as Eleanor Bumpers had done, was a tactic to address the conditions. Police often came instead of maintenance workers, sometimes to arrest and evict the parents, sometimes to arrest and harass the lead-poisoned children and throw them in the workhouse. None of it removed the lead, only the survivors. When I was in my late teens, I heard my grandmother say that police would be waiting outside in the streets to catch the kids who were underdeveloped. It felt ableist, eugenic even. I argued viciously with my Uncle Phil about it behind her back. That's bad racial science. That not real. But as I grew older and listened more closely, she was actually explaining pieces of the St. Louis activist campaigns against lead poisoning. Ivory Perry began lead testing homes in my family's neighborhood in the 1960s. My softball team practiced in a park named after him in that neighborhood, but I did not know who he was until I became a lawyer. He organized under the Union Sarah Gateway Center, black tenants living in conditions like my family's, and worse, called him to put pressure on white landlords to make repairs. Perry had helped organize rent strikes and fight police violence and was a local coordinator for the Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign. In A Life in the Struggle, Ivory Perry and the Culture of Opposition, 
Historian George Lipsitz explains that Perry noticed that children in the oldest and poorest sections of the city suffered rashes, constantly running eyes and noses, and persistent colds, especially in homes with peeling paint and fallen plaster. Every house he tested for lead in my grandmother's neighborhood returned with positive results. Heat made it worse, Perry explained. Most poor people don't have air conditioning, and they raise the windows in the summertime, and most of the little kids put their mouths on the window seal. The federal government only banned lead paint in new homes built after 1978 and did not require landlords to remove any lead paint from current homes. At once, white people were moving into lead-free homes in the county and renting substandard lead-ridden homes to poor black families in the city. When my grandmother said underdeveloped, she was referring to the consequences of lead poisoning. Neither she nor my mom ever told us what lead was, only what it did, based on what they had learned from the campaign. I did not understand the science until the Flint water crisis. Per the World Health Organization, child-led poisoning can lead to temper tantrums, argumentativeness, active defiance, and refusal to comply with adult requests and rules, deliberate attempts to annoy and upset people, frequent anger and resentment, mood instability, substance abuse, aggression toward people and animals, destruction of property and deceitfulness, lying or stealing. No amount of lead is safe in our bloodstreams. Bioethicist Harriet A. Washington's A Terrible Thing to Waste details how lead causes several different illnesses and can reprogram young developing brains. Per Washington, the reprogramming can increase aggressive behaviors such as bullying, slow down mental processing, and pass on these mutating genes to the next generations. She and other scientists suggest that lead was the primary cause of the violent crime wave in the 1980s and 90s. In one study, Childhood blood lead was the single most predictive factor for disciplinary problems and juvenile crime. It was also the fourth largest predictor of adult crime. States and the federal government invested heavily in police and prisons instead of lead detoxification and safe environments. The United States eventually banned lead from gas and violent crime rates dropped. What's so frustrating about research is that it happens on top of a racist, carceral terrain. Spending for policing and prisons have been increasing since the 1940s, which provides more resources to cops to patrol and surveil black communities. Lead may lead to disciplinary problems and juvenile crime. But discipline and crime are social constructs that we give meaning. For example, there were juveniles who committed drug crimes because drugs were criminalized. As the federal government explained during the peak of juvenile crime, usually there is no complainant, so the police must be proactive in finding drug offenders. They choose when, where, and how often to look for drug activity 
and as a result, drug enforcement activity affords the police an opportunity to apply coercion when and where they see fit. Cops made more arrests for particular behaviors, which is not necessarily a marker of increased crime and disciplinary infractions. So even if lead does impact our bodies and minds, it doesn't impact them in a vacuum. And for the poor and dispossessed, cops will be the primary response. Especially, insidiously, Washington explains that General Motors decided to use lead and gas because the company could not patent and profit from the widely available ethanol. GM knew and disregarded the risks and exposed millions of people to lead poisoning, which may be the cause of the biggest childhood poisoning epidemic ever. In the 1970s, Ivory Perry had tried explaining this fact to everyone he could. Alderman, businessman, scientist. According to Lipsitz, even black doctors initially rebuffed the claims, so Perry set up a makeshift office in the back of a black-owned bar and recruited college students to administer lead tests to poor black children with the funds he raised. After years of protesting, shutting down conferences, and public shaming, Perry and black parents forced the city and local health officials to fund initiatives to fix the lead problem. More than 20,000 black children at the time had tested positive for poisoning that was completely preventable. As of 2021, more than 1 million children in the United States have lead poisoning and 800 million globally, about a third of all children. Lead poisoning does not manifest neutrally. Black children and Mexican-American children have the highest rates of lead exposure. Almost 67% of black children born between 1985 and 2000 were raised in high-poverty neighborhoods, compared to 6% of white children. These communities are likely to have significant lead presence. Corinne Gaines had sued landlords from her childhood over lead poisoning. The lawsuit stated that a sea of lead paint in their properties had caused her to display signs of neurocognitive impairment and loss of significant IQ points as a result of that exposure. Gaines and other tenants had sued the landlord who owned the property where she believed she was poisoned. Freddie Gray's family had also filed a lawsuit over lead poisoning and won. Upon discovering these legal cases, journalists used the lead poisoning claims as evidence Gaines and Gray's behavior toward the police was erratic. Using their lawsuits, subtly blamed the victims for how they died, instead of criticizing the police for escalating the violence against them. Lead poisoning impacts policing and immigration as well. New York State mandates that parents get their children tested for lead poisoning at ages one and two years old. A team of researchers found in a 2012 study that South Asian residents had elevated blood lead levels in 20% of the adults and 15% of the children, as compared to 5% of adults and 2.5% of children citywide. The scientists associated the blood lead levels with recent repair work, the inability to speak English, 
belonging to Bangladeshi or Indian ethnic groups, and occupational risk factors. The two greatest risk factors were having recent repair work done at home that exposed lead paint and not having health insurance. In response, the mayor acknowledged the lead paint, but with an important caveat that blamed the people who had been poisoned. Some traditional consumer products used in the South Asian community can contain lead. The city announced $500,000 on a multilingual campaign to warn South Asians about the dangers of lead. Awareness is absolutely important. But it appears that these communities needed the city to require landlords to also safely detoxify lead from the premises and for the federal government to ensure their health care coverage to treat the exposure. The heat from corporate and human greenhouse gas emission will continue to warm the planet, and unless we stop it, the lead violence will continue. Lead is still present in millions of homes and goods. Especially older homes where landlords cheaply painted over it. Most of the hottest summers in recorded history have occurred since 1998, and heat will primarily force poor people of color to cool down and lead them to lead-contaminated window seals, doorways, streets, and parks. Without climate justice, environmental justice, and abolition, police will continue to arrest, capture, and kill lead-poisoning survivors. My grandmother had become severely depressed from her unhealthy living and work conditions. My mother arranged for her to move to the apartments on Hickory Street, and I was born a few months later. She'd say to me, I was very depressed. I was in a dark, dark place. You were my light. I think it was the change of scenery, too. My uncle said she was so happy that her life was turning around and she didn't have to deal with racist landlords anymore. First we lived with her, then next door for about 17 years. Kids in the neighborhood stopped by and played in her hair, makeup, pearls, and elaborate wardrobe. When I was late to school, she'd grab her cane and walk me halfway to Loverture and would not turn back until I went inside the building. She had the beautiful, stereotypical black grandmother living room. The couches were gold paisley with red specks, and the armchairs were green. Everything was in plastic, except for the wooden television set with the built-in record player. I had memorized the order of the vinyls on the rack near the entrance. She teased me about rap music. I teased her about the blues. Grandmama, what kind of song is, Your Husband is Cheating on Us? I did not know my grandmother had diabetes until my brother and I got in trouble for stealing her orange sherbet ice cream. She'd prick herself at the kitchen table with tiny plastic-covered needles. My mom was sick, too, and could never get rid of a cold. Courtney always had nosebleeds. Corey, her twin, had asthma. I had severe eczema that made my skin bleed and peel. Then my grandmother's strokes came. She lost her penmanship, and I started writing her correspondence for bills and filling out her checks. The second stroke came in 2006. I was heading to my boyfriend's junior prom when the ambulance carried her off. Since we used the ambulances for everything, it felt normal. We didn't really have our own doctors or dentists because we didn't have insurance. 
Roy, a black boy across the street from us, pulled my mother's aching wisdom tooth out with a pair of pliers. This time, my grandmother's lung collapsed. She did not come back home. She went to an elderly facility that her Medicaid covered, one right next to a highway. Our neighborhood was a newish development and a far cry from the dilapidated housing my family had moved from. Still, it sat nestled near the polluting highway, like every other neighborhood my grandmother lived in since her family migrated to St. Louis. Wholesale commercial floral distribution chains occupied LaSalle, one block north of us. A fish seasoning manufacturing company sat two blocks north. And Praxair, one of the largest industrial gas companies in the world, sat one block east. The military airplane junkyard was three blocks down and across from my middle school. Sometimes I still go on Google Earth and look at the side-by-side images of exposed, broken airplanes and children on the playground, where I once had gym class. The grocery stores closed down, and we had to rely on corner stores with overpriced and expired goods because we never had a car. We were always taking care of each other because we were getting sick all the time. Sick meant missing school, and my absenteeism alerted police, social workers, and foster care. When cops and social workers came to our house, we were poor and physically ill, not abused. They removed us from our home, and it did not stop us from getting sick. Ironically, my second foster home was on the same street where my grandmother, mom, aunts, and uncles lived, and many of the issues had remained. Lead, concentrated poverty, and economic exploitation. Our foster parent beat my brother and I our first night there because we fell asleep, crying, in the same bed. Boys and girls don't sleep in the same bed, she screamed after midnight while swinging a broom at our seven- and nine-year-old bodies. We were literally being punished for being poor, for being sick, and for being black. Our mother fought vigorously for our return. When we came home, the dying started. Shootings and asthma attacks claimed my friends. Heart diseases and cancers claimed our parents. By the time I reached law school, many of my mother's neighborhood friends were gone or dying. We lost Michael, who was short and lean, often shirtless with a big smile and a brown paper bag wrapped around a can. We lost his son first, Mickey, to a shooting. Michael and his brother Emery beat on my family's door to warn us about the exploding Praxair gas tanks. We also lost Ray, my mother's frenemy. On weekends, they'd start singing and drinking on the front porch and often ended by cursing each other out. Our neighbor, Ms. Brenda, took us to the grocery store when we needed to do big shopping trips, and I helped her program her AOL account in return. She'd die from cancer. Her daughter, Jenny, too. Jenny was a bubbly triplet with two brothers who all befriended my mom. They were the first black triplets I'd ever seen. She had six kids and did not live to see 50. Their big sister, Jeanette, is battling cancer as I write. Trina didn't see 50 either, and her children are my two little sisters' ages. These were the parents, lovers, spades, partners who'd argue with each other and later loan money. 
right before Christmas 2017, my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer too. I was heartbroken and terrified. Was it the climate? A lifetime of living near highways? Decades of lead exposure? Stress from racism, sexism, classism from her landlords and bosses? The smoking because of the stress? The military junkyard down the road? The exploding Praxair tanks? Bad food? The multitude of possibilities demonstrated the depth and breadth of oppression. Familiar diseases and ailments have become more than enough reason for me to want to reclaim our planet in the name of abolition, environmental justice, and climate justice. But this reclamation was especially important for what is to come, the unfamiliar. If capitalists and countries do not reduce and end their reliance on fossil fuels and environmental toxins, our families will continue to become sick and die. Police and prisons will continue to manage survivors of the devastation. At nearly every opportunity for progressive change to preserve our planet, the police have been on the opposite side. Nationally, police have enforced evictions against tenants who complain about environmental hazards because police protect private property owners. My grandmother could not call the police on the landlord whose property nearly killed her. Internationally, police arrest and beat prisoners who complain and organize against conditions because cops maintain the order inside prisons. In Flint, Michigan, cops arrested activists who complained about the lead in the water at a city council meeting. Not the governor or any official whose administration used pipes that poisoned the poor black community. In South Dakota, police shot rubber bullets, tear gas, and water cannons at Standing Rock Sioux Tribe members and other activists who organized to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, a $3.8 billion pipeline to carry 500,000 barrels of fossil fuel a day, more than 1,100 miles from North Dakota to Illinois. Spills and leaks would destroy the water supply and contaminate soil. Successful passage would lead to burning more fossil fuel and warming the earth. Kelsey Warren, the billionaire CEO of the majority shareholding company of DAPL, bragged, I'm going to be a little boastful here. Nobody has built more pipelines in the last 15 years than energy transfer. Activists cannot call the police on the capitalists because the police are there to protect the capitalists. After four years of protests, organizing, and litigation by activists, a federal judge halted the pipeline in 2020 and ruled that it must be emptied of all oil while the government undertakes an environmental review of the potential impact. Though a victory, the fight is not over. Black organizers had a history of resisting this police violence, as well as fighting environmental devastation to their neighborhoods and to their bodies. Ivory Perry's organization was just one example. MOVE is another. I cannot exactly remember when I learned about them, but I remember how I felt to learn that the city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb on a house full of black people in 1985. 
For more than 10 years before the bombing, the family and other people had been living and organizing together, using the revolutionary religious teachings of John Africa. Mike Africa Jr., who was raised in the Move family before and after his parents were imprisoned, following a political prosecution, stated in an interview, When we say life, we're talking about people, animals, and the environment. In the 70s, the organization began protesting against institutions that were enslaving life, bartering life, and mistreating life. Move people demonstrated against Barnum and Bailey Circus, the Philadelphia Zoo, the East Park Reservoir to protest pollution, and also the prisons themselves for detaining people, particularly black people, on unjust charges and with extremely high prison terms for crimes that other people served little or no prison time for. Because of this, the group was met with extreme opposition. Move charges that people will do all in their power for a breath of air because air is a necessity and money is worthless. Over the last century, industry has raped the earth of countless tons of minerals, bled billions of gallons of oil from the ground, and enslaved millions of people to manufacture cars, trucks, planes, and trains that further pollute the air with their use. They practiced communalism and lived healthy lifestyles, mostly consuming a raw diet. They even kept hundreds of pounds of food for birds, dogs, and squirrels. They counseled their children for accountability instead of delivering physical punishment and whippings. They opposed intimate partner violence as well and believed that people could become revolutionaries without discipline and intention. Move did believe in self-defense and engaged in armed self-defense against the police who constantly harassed them. They also organized against capitalism and were critical of Jesse Jackson, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and other black leaders whom they believed promoted it. The combination agitated capitalists, traditional civil rights leaders, and law enforcement alike. The FBI was created to target groups who wanted to destroy capitalism, and agents went undercover in Move's rapidly gentrifying neighborhood to spy on black and left-wing groups. On March 28, 1976, Move threw a welcome home celebration for family members returning from jail. Cops showed up and attacked them and crushed the skull of Janine and Philip Africa's newborn baby, Life. Africa. Because she had been delivered at home and did not have a birth certificate, police denied the baby existed. Neighbors and local politicians confirmed that Janine indeed had life. Some people expressed sympathy, but still, their neighbors and black middle-class people around the city found their lifestyle and activism nuisances, which increased their vulnerability to police violence. After years of standoffs and fights, MOVE and the police entered an agreement in 1978 per Mike Africa Jr. Cops exchanged political prisoners for MOVE's weapons, then broke the agreement during a random raid a year later. A cop was killed during the raid, and nine MOVE members went to prison for nearly 40 years, including Janine. 
the cop was killed by a single bullet, and Guardian Chief Reporter Ed Pilkington explains that during trial, where they were found guilty of third-degree murder, no forensic evidence was presented that connected the Move 9 to the weapon that caused the fatality, which the defense argued came from another cop. Moves Dell Africa told Pilkington during an interview, there was no shooting from our side. No one in the house had any gunshot residue. None of us had fingerprints on any of the weapons they claimed came out of the house. In 1985, the first black mayor of Philadelphia labeled them a terrorist organization and ordered them to be bombed during another police standoff at their home. The department had already fired 10,000 bullets in an hour and a half at their home. Two people survived, and 11 died, including five children and founder John Africa. Police killed another of Janine's children, 12-year-old Phil. 65 homes eventually caught fire from being in proximity to the burning building, leaving over 200 people homeless. The police commissioner stopped firefighters from saving houses and instead let the fires burn. Sometimes, abolition critics will tell me that we, black people, oppressed people, whomever, first need to organize ourselves before we address police violence. The problem with this criticism is that the police have a history and practice of destroying progressive communities, ideas, and programs that build up our neighborhoods and move as a primary example. They prevented other radical and progressive organizing as well. Chicago Police Department destroyed the meals for the free breakfast programs that the young lords used to feed children and law enforcement across the country threatened the young lords and Black Panthers who used tuberculosis and lead poisoning screenings to keep their communities safe and healthy. Cops attempted to destroy MOVE, too, because they were mostly Black people with leftist politics who were practicing their beliefs, engaging in their rights to protest, practice self-defense, and raise their children according to their values of healthy living and appreciation for all life. Police attacked an imprisoned move because they practice protecting themselves and the planet, which threatens capitalism and policing. We cannot wait until we build everything to begin abolishing the prison industrial complex because the police will just destroy it. We have to build and dismantle at the same time. Incredibly, MOVE people were still politically active while in prison and after four decades of incarceration and still held on to their beliefs. Guards targeted them for keeping their MOVE identities and maintaining their innocence. They withstood. Janine Africa, Janet Africa, and Debbie Africa supported each other inside and trained a dog that helped disabled people. Janine Africa was the Minister of Education and published articles critical of U.S. imperialism and policing. Upon their releases, they continued to organize around their beliefs and condemned the criminal legal system. Other MOVE people died in prison. Mumia Abu-Jamal, a journalist who covered the family extensively and adopted John Africa's teachings, remains incarcerated, 
following a political prosecution after a cop was killed during an encounter. Abu Jamal also maintains his innocence. When I met MOVE members in 2019 in Philadelphia to help organize against the prosecutor keeping him incarcerated, they remained relentless in their pursuit of his freedom. MOVE's commitment to healthy humans, animals, and the environment, and toward the liberation of all oppressed people, is one revolutionary example that I found different from other movements that had not incorporated anti-capitalism and racial justice into their campaigns. Before the Ferguson uprising, nearly all of the green activism that I learned about was organized around single-issue causes and led by well-intentioned white people. I played softball at Ivory Perry Park for three years and did not know about his legacy of organizing against police violence, economic oppression, and environmental degradation for black families across St. Louis and then the country. I had known about mass incarceration for years. I had not known about the organizing and resistance inside prisons against these toxic sites of violence. And I did not know about the long history of poor Black and Latinx families, especially Black women, who withheld their rent from landlords over crumbling and poisonous housing conditions. I had to widen my understanding of what counts as resistance to fully appreciate and acknowledge centuries of spectacular and quotidian claims to live a healthy life. From the Maroons to Eleanor Bumpers, from Move to my grandmother, as long as there have been people willing to destroy humans for a profit, there have been people resisting. The police have been developed in response to this resistance, and my activism has grown in response to the police. As the title of Mary Frances Berry's book on progressive social movements instructs, history teaches us to resist. I heard Ruth Wilson Gilmore once say, abolition must be red, black, and green at the Making and Unmaking Mass Incarceration Conference in Oxford, Mississippi. I'd written it on the inside cover of the book I was reading at the time. She later explained on a podcast that red meant abolition had to generalize resources for everyone, first to those most vulnerable. I believe the most vulnerable are people most susceptible to exploitation and premature death. Black represented internationalism, the commitment to care and organize with people across borders for a better world. And for Gilmore, abolition must be green, to take seriously the problem of environmental harm, environmental racism, and environmental degradation. In addition to activism toward these aims, several groups have demanded widespread policy proposals to save the earth, and all of us on it. Indigenous activists from the Red Nation have demanded the Red Deal, a policy proposal to stop climate change, end environmental degradation, and advance comprehensive prevention to harm in the first place. Nick Estes, who helped co-found Red Nation in 2014, explains that the deal focuses on indigenous treaty rights, land restoration, sovereignty, self-determination, decolonization, and liberation, 
in addition to the free housing, universal health care, free education, and green jobs already proposed in the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is a policy proposal that seeks to end climate change and offer a robust set of responses to an array of social problems. The two primary architects of the bill were Rihanna Gunn-Wright and Damon Drummer, two leaders at New Consensus, a Chicago-based policy think tank that tackles climate change, economic stagnation, racial and rural wealth gaps, and more by proposing solutions modeled after mass economic mobilizations of the past. The Red Deal aligned with particular elements of the Green New Deal and proposed additional demands to divest from militarism, imprisonment, and policing. These proposals are rooted in decolonization, anti-capitalism, and black abolitionism. Organizations such as the rapidly growing Sunrise Movement popularized the Green New Deal through activism and a sit-in demonstration against Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in November 2018. When the policy entered the mainstream in public imagination, it became a litmus test for presidential and congressional candidates on fighting climate change. The movement for black lives had completely changed its vision for black lives and created a new campaign, the Red, Black, and Green New Deal. M4BL explained that black, indigenous, and people of color and working-class poor communities are hit the hardest, though we contribute the least to what accelerates climate disasters. So in times of crisis, we need our communities aware and strong enough to be our own first responders. By focusing on policy, resources, and activism, the campaign can help build independence among people in the community to identify toxic environments and storms and begin to prepare themselves in the event of disaster. Additionally, robust agendas can foster interdependence within communities to plan together to prevent and respond to climate change and environmental degradation through discussing the issues, mutual aid, and organizing local campaigns. The policy aspects of these campaigns put pressure on elected officials to divest from polluting institutions, including corporations, military, and the police while also investing in clean energy solutions and neighborhood detoxification to improve our quality of life. By having a diversity of tactics, people interested in saving the environment and ourselves can contribute in various ways that can promote healthy living while abolishing all of the forms of state and corporate violence that causes premature death. The abolition of the prison industrial complex is the minimum for healthy lives that we all deserve to live. We only want the Earth. Conclusion We used to call 911 for everything except snitching. Now, we have not called in years. Since the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States in 2020, my three sisters and I have all been in quarantine together. One evening, two of them, Kayla and Courtney, were walking home from a grocery store. 
They saw a man shouting from his car because a toddler, probably younger than two years old, was in the middle of the street with a puppy. No other adult was present. My sisters grabbed the boy's hand and walked him from the street to a nearby house with an open door, shouting inside the house for help. Another boy, maybe about five years old, came down a flight of stairs. He said nobody was home. My sisters told the older boy to please keep the toddler inside. When my sisters came home, they told me about the toddler, the brother, and the puppy. Courtney also said that a woman walking down the street stopped to observe and appeared to be taking down the address to call the cops or Child Protective Services. I did not want the state to take anyone's children away or the cops to take anyone's parents away, so Courtney and I ran back to the kids' home to wait outside. I knocked on the door. The puppy barked, and the toddler climbed onto the couch to twist the doorknob. I shuddered. We started shouting into the house again, but nobody answered. I immediately thought about Atatiana Jefferson, the black woman in Texas who had left her door open one early morning while playing video games with her nephew. A neighbor called the cops to perform a wellness check. Her nephew reportedly told investigators that his aunt pointed her gun toward a window when she went to check out noises she heard outside. A cop arrived and shot inside the house through the window, killing a Tatiana. He could have also killed the boy. The cop resigned and pleaded not guilty to murder charges. I did not want to risk anyone else's life for a wellness check. Courtney and I decided to wait there until someone came home. I walked to the salon on the corner to ask the stylist if they knew the family. A stylist said the toddler had wandered into the shop alone about an hour earlier, around the time Courtney spotted him. The stylist called the shop's owner, who tried to reach the boy's mother to no avail. I returned to their house, and a neighbor came outside. I asked if she knew the mother, and she said yes, but defensively and afraid. I asked her to contact the mother, and she said she didn't have the mother's number and hurried back inside. She quickly returned with a bag of food and walked to the house where the boys were waiting. Courtney and I turned to each other in confusion. The neighbor said that she was the boy's grandmother and asked if I was a social worker. I told her no, that I was a lawyer, but more importantly, that I was afraid that someone would call the cops or a social worker to take the kids. We were not sure what to do, whether to believe the neighbor in the doorway before us. We wanted to help, but didn't want to be overbearing, so we approached the salon stylist, who confirmed that the neighbor was indeed the grandmother, who usually watched the kids. We felt a mixture of uncertainty and relief, so we walked back home. In the days that followed, Courtney and I went back to the house several times to knock on the door. Nobody answered. We visited the salon again, and the stylist said that she would keep her blinds open to watch out for the children. If the boy wandered, she would contact the grandmother and sit him in a chair to wait, like she had done before, the day Courtney walked him out of the street. She also took our contact information in case we needed to come up with a better plan and told me that she would contact me if she reached the mother. We'll keep going back until she does. It's absolutely nightmarish what could have happened to those kids. A car could have hit the toddler 
or a stranger could have abducted him off the street. Flames could have engulfed the house, or the mounted television could have fallen. The parent could have lost her children, or, if they lived, lost custody. I'm sure that some people believe that the latter is exactly what should happen based on this incident. I offer no specific defense. I can only speculate whether the parent left for an emergency or for leisure. Maybe she trusted her mother to babysit in her absence, and at the exact time that Kayla and Courtney had been walking down the street, the grandmother had gone inside the house for any number of reasons. If someone had called the police, it is very likely that the city and the state would have sent cops and social workers to that family's house. The mother probably would have had to spend time in court fighting to get her kids back. If she was not prosecuted and imprisoned for child endangerment, a foster parent would get checks to support the boys. And then there's the stigma, shame, and violence associated with losing custody of your children, which simply cannot be measured. When I became a parent, I remember listening to white parents tell stories with no shame about how their young kids went wandering outside or accidentally ate small amounts of household poison about the house. Surely they had some fear, but police involvement, prison, or losing custody were never a part of the conversation. Those were unfathomable. The contrast along racial and class lines is stark. Indigenous lines, too. In law school, we studied State v. Williams, a case where Native American parents were prosecuted for manslaughter because they had not taken their toddler to the doctor for a cavity that became infected and led to his death. The parents did not know how serious the infection was, and at the time, the state of Washington, where they lived, had removed custody from indigenous parents at such high rates and for such trivial matters that it deterred families from seeking help. At the time of the case in the late 70s, states took at least one child from nearly 80% of indigenous families living on reservations. The removal of indigenous children continues to be a legacy of settler colonialism. Today, they constitute less than 1% of all children, but nearly 25 to 50% of children removed from families in several states. And for the black boys my sisters helped in the street, their fate could have been akin to the millions of other black kids whom the state removed and who now constitute nearly 25% of kids in foster care. Around the time of my first visit to the boys' house, I listened to the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial read the guilty verdict for his murder of George Floyd. The prosecutor asked that the judge detain Chauvin in prison until sentencing and a cop handcuffed his former colleague to take him away. Many people felt joy, excitement even. President Obama and President Biden refrained from calling the verdict justice, but affirmed that it was a step in the right direction. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi went farther. She thanked George Floyd for sacrificing his life so that justice could be served. But he did not sacrifice his life. He did not want to die at all. He screamed that he couldn't breathe so that he could live. He was executed. As I'd learned with Oscar Grant, Walter Scott, Akai Gurley, Laquan McDonald, Botham John, 
and any other victim of police violence whose killer had been convicted, a conviction was not justice for George Floyd. We will never know what justice for him might look like because justice requires the participation of the impacted. The dead cannot participate. Chauvin was punished and will fight tooth and nail to appeal the decision to avoid prison, the place where we send mostly poor, black, and disabled people to suffer. Moments after the verdict, a cop in Columbus, Ohio, shot and killed 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. Micaiah and her sister were in foster care. Their mom had taken them to a social worker seeking help with her teenage girls, who she felt were rebelling against her. Rich parents send rebellious teenagers to boarding schools and Christian academies or pay for them to have a gap year to travel the world and decompress between high school and college. Poor, rebellious black teenagers who are frustrated by precarious lifestyles moving constantly, switching schools, food and utility insecurity, all of what I'd experienced, get juvenile prison or foster care, often both. After a court hearing, cops detained Micaiah's mother because she was found guilty of neglect and also detained the children, the supposed victims, in a police van. Cedric Robinson describes Western civilization as neither, Foster care is also neither. It is a system of family punishment rooted in slavery and settler colonialism. And like with the police, parents will seek support from the system when they are in dire need of resources. After being removed from their mother's home, the sisters had lived with their grandmother, but a landlord kicked them out of the newly crowded apartment. A New York Times feature explained that Ohio pays licensed strangers ten times more than relatives for foster care. And a social worker took the Bryant children away from their grandmother, who had asked if they could spend a few nights at a hotel with her until she sorted out a new living arrangement. The girls were put in five different homes and faced bullying. The day of Chauvin's verdict, Micaiah's sister called the police for help because she said that adult women were at their house trying to fight them. Cops arrived during the altercation just as one of the adult women spat at the girls. Micaiah ran toward the woman with a knife and a cop fired in the direction of the family, killing Micaiah. Columbus police quickly released the body camera footage in defense of the cop. After several high-profile police killings, the same lawyers and pastors flock to the families who have the best chance of winning civil and criminal suits. George Floyd had three celebrity-studded funerals. Micaiah had none. No fanfare or eulogy by a famous black preacher. No black lawyer promising to secure justice for the family or the child. A petition that circulated online to demand justice for Micaiah failed to reach 5,000 signatures. Trayvon Martin's petition surpassed one million signees. The most transformative action happened at Ohio State University, where students organized a sit-in to demand that the school cut ties with the local police department. Exponential amounts of money, time, and energy were spent to correct Micaiah's mother including several thousand dollars a month paid to strangers for taking temporary custody 
social workers' salaries, judges' salaries, court costs, the cost of the dispatcher who answered the 911 call, and the salary and benefits of the cop who took Micaiah's life. Family removal and the criminal legal system create jobs for the middle class to manage the poor. Instead, all of that money, time, and energy could have paid for quality housing in a neighborhood without high concentrations of crime, economic inequality, deindustrialization, and violence. It could help eliminate those neighborhoods altogether. Micaiah and her sisters could have kept their friends and community. Instead of a landlord who kicked them out of their grandmother's apartment, their grandmother could have had her own home, where they had sleepovers on floors and couches for fun, not out of necessity. If the teens argued with their mother over bedtimes, the family could have talked about it at therapy sessions on a Wednesday after school. Maybe the mother would have learned that the girls were really good at TikTok and obsessed over the app, or that it was the only time when they had privacy. We would not have known Micaiah's name unless she went viral for another reason. That's the abolitionist, present and future, that I'm forging, one that eliminates the possibility of policing and family punishment for children like the boys in the street, Micaiah and her sister, and even my siblings and I when we were kids. But it's not just any abolitionist future. Historically, it has been possible to be abolitionist while also being capitalist, ableist, patriarchal, and colonialist. More than ever, we need dynamic abolitionisms that depart from all forms of oppression and for each generation to decide their own fight and future. For me and many of my peers, our abolitionist fight and future is committed to decolonization, disability justice, earth justice, and socialism. All of these require mass political education, a commitment to understand and debate these issues with people who we love, and organize within our communities. Through abolition study and praxis, we explore and understand why millions of people in the U.S. call the cops every year and how to begin reducing our reliance on them for help. An estimated 21% of people 16 or older in the U.S. had some contact with police in 2015. Approximately 53 million people. Residents initiated approximately 10% of the contact with cops, and only 6% of that figure was to report a possible crime. Calls for violent crime constitute 4% or less of calls to cops. This is true in cities with the highest homicide rates. In Memphis, 20% of 911 calls are a mistake. Of the 130,000 emergency calls in 2016, at least 25,000 were for everything ranging from misdiagnosed stroke symptoms to simple sore throats. In New Orleans, 15% of 911 calls fall into the category of other. 24% are calls for area checks, and 14% are for a generic category of complaints. For further context, in 2020, the top four categories for calls were area check, 104,004, complaint, 47,419, business check, 25,527, disturbance, 25,240, 
as compared to theft, 12,865. Suicide threat, 1,650. Death, 292. Simple rape, 61. And simple assault, 13. St. Louis, my hometown, currently tops the list for the highest murder rate, and the top calls there are for disturbance, domestic disturbance, and suspicious person. Contrary to popular belief, cops are not spending the bulk of their time responding to dangerous streets in urban communities. One tentative suggestion to reduce our reliance on police is to make 911 and 311 data publicly available and accessible everywhere. Progressive organizers and activists could sort this data, which would reveal what kinds of calls are made, which neighborhoods, and whether anyone was arrested. I anticipate that most people need social services and businesses, not cops. For example, if 20% of calls in a neighborhood are for wellness checks because someone left their door open, then hopefully neighbors could begin knocking, as my sisters and I did. However, if for other reasons neighbors cannot, volunteers from an organization or neighborhood association could perform checks. If the calls reveal harm, the organizers can use that information to place street violence interrupters, mediators, and resources for families of victims as proactive measures for conflict resolution and de-escalation. Without police. The goal is not to replace cops with other people to police our neighborhoods. The goal is to begin eradicating the reasons we call cops in the first place, and organizers and community members must be tasked with completely changing the dynamics of the area, not just the people who respond to calls. That is partly what abolition is, eradicating the prison industrial complex and harm at the same time, over time, to make both obsolete. Organizers and activists do not and ought not to rely on 911 data alone. Conflict mediation centers, organizers, or the block associations that exist right now could begin taking inventory of the needs of the residents on each block and help them prepare for emergency and non-emergency situations. This could be done by canvassing and going door-to-door -to, -door to collect information and meeting and organizing with homeless people who experience high police contact Hamid of Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, for example, met with Skid Row community members for several months to learn about their contact with police. The organization documented the various contacts, created a people's history of police violence to display in the streets there, and then created campaigns based on that information to reduce surveillance and contact. Critical Resistance and the Audrey Lord Project help people proactively prepare for emergencies to reduce their reliance on and contact with police. Organizers and communities are demanding a reduction of the carceral state. We have to dismantle the structures as we build solutions and alternatives to harm because cops have a long record of disrupting progressive community-based organizing. We need people dedicated to organizing for decriminalization, decarceration, and divestment from the prison industrial complex. Decriminalization is the process of removing criminal punishment from laws, such as repealing alcohol prohibition laws and drug crimes.
decriminalization removes causes for police encounters. Marijuana decriminalization in California, for example, gives cops one less excuse to stop and arrest someone who they suspect has it. Police forces are already declining in number because of public pressure. Cities must halt recruitment, freeze budgets, and cede to campaigns like Asada's Daughters' Call to Close Cop Academies. Additionally, all federal funding and programs for local police departments must end, including COPS and 1033, as well as funding for Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Border Patrol, which organizations like Mijente have called to be abolished. Federal government funding to local departments began in the 1960s and can easily be rolled back. Republican-led states have no issue with withdrawing from federally funded programs such as unemployment and health care. They should direct the same energy toward police. The possibilities are endless with abolition, which is why, more than anything, I hope that people join or start grassroots organizations to get in where they fit. Robust movements for socialism, decolonization, disability justice, and earth justice are equally or perhaps more important than a singular movement for abolition. Capitalism creates concentrated poverty, especially for people who are black, indigenous, disabled, women, migrants, or young. This exploitation makes people less safe. Socialism is mystifying. And because it threatens capitalism, business and government work together to make it sound scary and dangerous. They'll point to Cuba or the Soviet Union as failures of socialism or communism, even though the U.S. has been responsible for the deaths of millions upon millions to preserve capitalism through slavery, war, environmental degradation, prison violence, police violence, and state-sanctioned violence through mass shootings and extrajudicial killings by white people. But an economy controlled by workers would increase resources and wealth for everyone, not just the billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk. Big businesses use cops to break up strikes and labor movements because once workers unite against bosses, it's harder for companies to exploit their labor. The Democratic Socialists of America and Dream Defenders both organize for socialist demands. Dream Defenders describes that in a socialist world, everyone would have a decent place to live, enough food to eat, clean water to drink, clean air to breathe, medical attention when they need it, warm clothes for the cold weather, a good education, and the ability to develop to their fullest potential. Under socialism, everyone would be free and equal, regardless of gender, race, nationality, or religion. Both groups organize for demands including quality, free universal health care, free education, and strong labor movements. These demands strengthen the social safety net so that workers can be in a better bargaining position to demand higher wages from their employers. This is especially salient for disabled workers who are exploited the most in the workplace and have a weak social safety net, which makes all of us vulnerable to exploitation. Companies will not raise wages for people who depend on them in desperation to survive. 
Capitalism is an inequality-making machine, and using socialism to eradicate inequality reduces the purpose of police to manage people who are locked out of schools, housing, health care, work, and social life. Until we have a completely people-centered economy, activists have called for various measures to move us in that direction. One measure is mass public education to demystify capitalism and socialism and to debunk the mainstream notion that poverty is an individual person's decision or fault and that people become billionaires by virtue of their hard work and good ideas. This simply is not true. If it was, then Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a sharecropper and wanted to destroy America to build a free, integrated society, would have been rich, and not just the seven black Americans who became billionaires, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, Tyler Perry, Kanye West, Jay-Z, Robert Smith, and David Stewart. Slaves and sharecroppers who toiled for hours and invented medicines and machines worked hard, and capitalists stole their earnings on the fields, then stole their children's earnings in the factories, then stole their grandchildren's earnings in the penitentiary. Meanwhile, the people whose family stole the earnings benefited from generational wealth, their great-great-grandparents' right to enslave and steal land, their great-grandfathers' right to vote, their grandparents' right to inherit homes, their parents' right to pay for college, and their child's right to admission as a legacy applicant. Taxation to begin redistributing wealth is very important. But to gain the traction we need for widespread support, we have to tell the truth about capitalism. As Professor Manning Marable writes, the choice for blacks is either socialism or some selective form of genocide. For the U.S. proletariat, workers' democracy, or some form of authoritarianism or fascism. Global decolonization movements tie many anti-capitalism and abolition strands together. For example, the Red Nation's The Red Deal calls for abolishing colonialism, capitalism, occupations, law enforcement, and child protective services, which would have kept Micaiah Bryant and many indigenous children alive. Modern colonial territories and occupations from tribal reservations to Western Sahara against Puerto Ricans and Palestinians, are enforced by police and militaries that create more violence and cannot keep people safe. Palestinian women and girls report high rates of violence from Palestinian men, and Palestinian men report sexual violence and rape while detained by Israelis' military. Similar to the lack of police and prosecutorial jurisdiction for indigenous people in the United States, Palestinians have no authority to prosecute Israelis. And even within Israel's military, 91% of sexual assaults happen against women. More than half are not reported. Palestinian women have to cross borders illegally and hide from military forces to seek refuge from sexual violence in women's shelters. Police cannot stop the violence and sometimes contribute. There are no shelters in Gaza, and survivors cannot flee for help. 
Ending occupations and the legacies of settler colonialism not only ends violence from nation-states, but also changes the terrain upon which all violence occurs and improves our ability to prevent, eliminate, and respond to harm. Rather than further displacement and land dispossession, the Red Deal echoes calls for free and sustainable housing, education, health care, and transit that is accessible by all, as well as the end of violence against oppressed peoples, animals, and the planet. The deal's details for each demand are rooted in love, healing, and research. They emphasize the importance of political education around budgets for the sake of liberation. For instance, the deal criticizes the federal government for spending 80% of transportation appropriations on highways and 20% on public transit, and calls on us to wage campaigns against this disproportionate spending in order to improve movement for poor, rural, and working-class people. The vast majority of these funds line the pockets of private contractors who make a profit from infrastructure projects and automobile corporations who lobby to improve highways so that consumers will continue to purchase and drive private vehicles. This means that the majority of public money, our money, goes towards inflating the profits of the ruling class. We must advocate for public money to go to operational costs like driver wages, gas, and bus maintenance, which create stable employment for thousands of working-class people. The stable and sustainable employment for accessible green jobs and housing and transit cuts across decolonization, anti-capitalism, environmental and climate justice, and disability justice. These intersectional platforms and policy demands are in conversation with abolition. Housing, jobs, and transit reduce precarity, violence, carjackings, theft, and arguments that become physical. This is the right idea, building the thriving societies that we want by dismantling the oppressive societies that we have. Activists or abolition-curious people will often ask me, what does abolition look like to you? My answers change all the time during a conversation, especially since I believe that the dreaming and practicing should happen together. This is what I'm thinking about today as I'm writing the conclusion to this book. Every neighborhood would have five quality features, a neighborhood council, free 24-hour child care, art, conflict, and mediation centers, a free health clinic, and a green team. Councils. Neighborhood councils and block associations would have meetings where people make impactful decisions about the community. Many communities already have these, but few people participate in them because they don't have time, resources, or interest. These associations would be different. Private property owners would not dominate them, and since everyone who wanted quality living space would have it, anyone who had time and an interest could help facilitate the council. I don't care much about races, but if people wanted to run them, then they all would be funded equally, so that voters would not think that a candidate was stronger simply because they had bought more yard signs or cool t-shirts. The councils would make quick and impactful decisions about traffic, pollution, and construction, 
and act as incubators for people to try different ideas around quality of life improvements, such as streetlights, solar panels, block parties, and festivals. At these councils, everyday residents would take up particular causes to keep their communities safe from all kinds of violence. In the mid-80s, a group of mostly poor and working-class black mothers started attending city council meetings to protest a measure that would have put a trash incinerator in their neighborhood. They began meeting with each other and eventually formed Concerned Citizens of South Central Los Angeles. They waged a two-year campaign against the placement of the dump and won. They had not previously trained organizers self-identifying as environmental justice activists, but as parents who committed time, energy, and resources to meeting regularly because their lives and the lives of their children and neighborhoods depended on it. There are countless examples of organizations and ad hoc committees like these that win campaigns against companies and governments, but because they are at the local level, the history is often overlooked. In my future, if there were difficult decisions to be made in a neighborhood, the council would be responsible for hosting town hall meetings, distributing literature, and acting on the community's response to local problems. The councils and block associations would strengthen our communities, which is especially important because abolition requires us to begin creating safe spaces where we are. We'd spend time cultivating current and future generations to be invested in their local communities. No more excitement about gaining value according to how many followers, likes, retweets, and shares we accumulate online. Our social media profiles will no longer be commodities that we are incentivized to package and sell. And we would focus on building relationships with our neighbors that could save our lives— by protecting us from fires, performing wellness checks, watching our kids in a pinch, and working in gardens, none of which we can accomplish online. But people are not fighting over trash dumps and corporations in the world that I ultimately want. There, in some tomorrow, I hope that neighborhood councils mainly fight over color themes for street festivals, not whether the bulk of spending needs to go to police and permits for security. I want council members to be annoyed with each other because the community garden is running out of space for new fruits and vegetables, and it's taking longer than expected to determine whether to expand the smallest garden or open a third location. I want new kinds of controversies for the democratically elected boards, like reserving a town hall to discuss lowering the age for voting on neighborhood issues so that more youth can be eligible to participate. We deserve new kinds of problems. Child care. Every neighborhood would also have free 24-hour child care centers for people who wanted or needed it. Every day in law school, I watched dozens of older black women push white babies in strollers through Harvard Square. Full-time and part-time child care should not be available only to those who have wealth. It should be and can be available to us all. Currently, cities pay cops around the clock to arrest people who are primarily poor. Cities can afford to provide free 24-hour daycare to help millions of people prevent harm. Micaiah Bryant's mom, my mom, the parent in our neighborhood whose baby Courtney helped get home, Courtney herself, me, 
Whoever needs to run errands, go to work, go to school, or even have a break should at least have the option. It would minimize stress and create sources of income for people who are excited about watching children. If the median income for a cop is $70,000, then surely we can at least pay that to a multiracial, multigenerational core of child care workers. A far cry from what the underpaid, hyper-exploited, black, brown, indigenous, immigrant, poor, and elderly women who disproportionately provide child care make now. Well-funded, well-resourced, bright and beautiful child care spaces could alleviate lots of violence in the home. Inez could have left her marriage and still had support for her children. Other people with children would not have to rely on an abusive partner's income or babysitting anymore. Instead, they would have an option to drop the kids off somewhere if they needed to work and go to school, much like parents who work during the day when their kids are at school now. My teacher friends used to say that we aren't babysitters, and they are right. We were not, but we should have babysitters, and it would be great for everyone. Work and education will enable people who have children to try new careers, find time to do things they love, and build skills to take care of themselves as well. The families could work together to help shape the expectations of the center, like whether there should be weekly or daily limits on the program. In my neighborhood, I would want the child care center to give each parent two consecutive weeks of child care so that parents or whoever is raising kids could take a vacation or spend time fixing up their home. People who are raising children deserve leisure and downtime, too, and free around-the-clock child care could help. The United States has such a warped sense of reality. Many people praise people who accumulate so much wealth that they can afford nannies and full-time workers to take care of their children. We will praise Beyonce, whom I love and often pay to watch perform, for being one of the greatest international superstars to ever live, while also being a wife, entrepreneur, and mother. Her work ethic has become a measuring stick for so many women and my friends and I joke with each other, girl, you have the same amount of hours in a day as Beyonce. It's funny, until I need to go to the grocery store for breakfast, and I have to get two sleeping kids up and dressed. When Beyonce tours, she has private child care. If her labor seems more important than all of the essential workers who watch our children, work at grocery stores, make our clothes, and fix our cars, then try living one day without Beyonce and then try living one day without the labor or products of essential workers. We can pilot these child care centers in different kinds of communities and zip codes to test them. Cities do not technically have to lead the charge. Child care could also happen in the form of mutual aid through community-based organizations. We could build sustainable dorms into neighborhood schools, revitalize storefront churches, gut the insides of prisons, jails, and police departments, and flip them into something useful. If children are better served at home or in smaller groups, the child care centers could send people to homes to attend to individual circumstances. Additionally, the center would be able to fully accommodate anyone who came, worked there, and needed services, including language, disability, sleep schedules, and religion. Art, mediation, 
and conflict resolution. I also dream of communities that have art, mediation, and conflict resolution centers. We can expand or build these practices and centers now by reducing and reducing our reliance on police, patrols, surveillance, and calls. Reducing our reliance on police involves many of the practices and campaigns that I've covered throughout the book, from conflict mediation to emergency preparedness to building interdependent networks to mediate and provide some relief for potentially violent encounters. The Safe Outside the System Collective provides another example. The anti-violence program is led by lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, two-spirit, and gender non-conforming people of color under the Audre Lorde Project, and they are devoted to challenging violence against LGBTGNC POC, specifically hate and police violence in central Brooklyn by using community-based strategies rather than relying on the police or state systems. They teach people how to recognize violence from police and from other people and internalized forms of violence to our own bodies, as well as how to build independent and interdependent plans toward preventing violence, intervening in and de-escalating violence, and responding to violence if it happens at parties. These devoted community-based projects that keep people safe from police and from community-based harm and can offer lessons and support to other communities that are building similar projects. My Art Mediation and Conflict, AMC, Resolution Center, would have each community develop people's histories of protests, activism, art, and culture. Neighborhood archivists would work and volunteer there for multi-generational projects. Elders would record family and community histories and fill in each other's stories. The archives and art would rotate to other AMC centers so that we could learn from other neighborhoods about our shared struggle and resistance. And also never forget that we used to have a world that put people in metal shackles, cages, and institutions of confinement. We'd remember that we used to live in a world where some people had to press a button to enter a building instead of using the sliding doors that we have now. We would host Freedom Fellows, the descendants of people from all formerly occupied territories, to give updates on how they melted barbed wire fences into metal sculptures and memorials for their ancestors. Trained mediators, therapists, and restorative justice practitioners would offer dispute and conflict resolution training and engage in restorative justice and transformative justice processes between family members and blocks and across neighborhoods. What Zelda and other organizers created in Cape Town under the COVID pandemic was remarkable because building cohesive neighborhoods creates the basis for strong measures of accountability and healing, which are more sustainable long-term than punishment. Abolishing the prison industrial complex does not mean that there will not be emergencies or harm. It recognizes that the vast majority of harm is preventable and can be eliminated. AMC centers would also help us navigate harm that remains using true measures of accountability that our communities can decide, rather than the violent system of policing that we currently have, and including for murders. 
Today, approximately 400,000 people die worldwide from homicides, which is less than 1% of all deaths. Cardiovascular diseases claim 17 million lives by comparison. In the abolitionist future that I hope to build for now, the number of murders has dropped drastically, not in a magical sense, but in a material sense. Whoever wants to work can and will receive their fair share of what they produce instead of a wage, which will prevent murders resulting from property, theft, robberies, and burglaries. We've learned how to have healthy breakups, so people we used to call men don't kill people we used to call women over leaving relationships. Heated arguments turn into headaches sometimes, not shootouts, because we've eliminated most guns. We may keep a few guns for sport only, but they cannot leave the arenas where we use them for play. In the rare case that a murder would happen, it would shock our communities, the entire world. We could more appropriately grieve, memorialize, and honor the fallen, unlike the way we barely absorb the lists upon lists of names from the news or online now. For the person who killed, we could spend time learning the circumstances and reasons underlying the murder for the purposes of rehabilitation, repair, and reparations. We could gather different options for accountability from the victim's family, the community, the council, AMC workers, and even the person who did the killing. The hearings and decisions would be more democratic, and what we would decide could range from temporary exclusion and loss of privileges to further inclusion and additional support for that person's needs and the family's needs. The process could be roughly the same across AMC centers, and the democratic aspects would account for the uniqueness of the circumstances. Health Clinics Health clinics are pretty self-explanatory. Members of the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago provided health care in the city and tested poor and working-class people of color for illnesses and lead poisoning, just as Ivory Perry did in St. Louis. I would expand this, and every community would have a place where someone could go for checkups, from preventative health to standard outpatient procedures. The clinics would provide different options for health care and holistic living, so people with different needs could have different choices for their well-being. The clinics would be on the upper levels of the building, and pools, studios, and workout facilities would be on the main level, fusing a clinic with a YMCA-style building. But there would be few people utilizing the clinics for emergencies because the food, air, water, and working conditions would be amazing, and people would not be dying from preventable diseases, cancers, and work-related injuries. So the local clinics would become spectacular at repairing sprains and bones because sports would be inclusive and people would be more physically active. We'd laugh about the days of big pharmaceutical companies that drove up the cost of medicines that were in demand, and we'd mourn the people we lost because they could not afford the insulin that the clinics now kept for distribution on the shelves. Green Teams each neighborhood would have a green team. They would do trash pickup and sorting on every block. After dinner, several times a week, workers would get paid to collect food waste bins to turn into a neighborhood compost filled with terrific soil and worms, which I'm too afraid to be around. No more shipping and burning waste abroad. 
We would do our best to reuse materials and food locally, donating plastics, metals, paper, and glass to the Art, Mediation, and Conflict Resolution Center. The green team would also prioritize maintaining trees and flowers on each block so that people could live in shady environments, which would keep us cool and keep violence down. The neighborhood council would have to consult with them if anything needed to be cut down to build something. In almost every city that I visit, the downtown center has people in bright yellow vests who replace flowers and pick up trash. I want this for my neighborhood, too. Not parks and recreation guards who shoot children, but park keepers and protectors who teach children how to keep spaces neat and clean. Our green teams would report to a regional council of sustainability because we would flip the budget allocations for highways and transit. 80% of the spending would be for high-speed trains that relied on renewable sources of energy, and 20% of the spending would go toward roads and cars for people who live, work, and play in remote areas. Train stops would be collectively decided and voted upon by the people by Uber, by Lyft. The few drivers that we would have would collectively own a company called Swoop. They'd keep track of how many people they carried safely between destinations, appointments, excursions, clinics, and parties. Reducing our current use of cars would drastically cut pollution and save the lives of those suffering from asthma, diseases, and cancer because we live near highways and major roads. Carjackings would drop, too. Every time someone moved into a community, the neighborhood council would prepare a welcome package with a unique gift and information about the local council, neighborhood, 24-hour child care center, green team, clinic, and art, mediation, and conflict resolution center. I'm going to cheat and offer a sixth feature, dream centers. We do not have to wait for this. We can start imagining and believing that we can create the world that we want and deserve. The greatest threats to our freedom are hopelessness, helplessness, and the criminalization of rebellion. Dreaming and joining others fights hopelessness because it reminds us that we develop the world that we want. As novelist Ursula K. Le Guin remarked, We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. But then, so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Dreaming also fights helplessness. Our only option is not to sit idly and weep at the viral videos of police killings. Those of us who care about freedom, justice, and safety are obligated to ensure that there will be no more videos. If we can dream of that world, then we can create it, too. And finally, our freedom dreams are the greatest threat to capitalism, colonialism, and the carceral state, which is why, after every uprising, states quickly pass laws to stop our dissent. Since the 1960s, protests have become more safe for police, yet police violence against civilians continues. Between 1976 and 1998, cops averaged about 400 justifiable homicides every year, and nearly 80 cops were murdered each year in the line of duty. 
Since the uprisings in 2014, cops averaged nearly 1,000 homicides each year, and the number of cops killed in the line of duty has hovered around 48. Homicides by cops have nearly doubled, while homicides of cops have nearly halved. Yet the mainstream notion is that we are in an anti-cop environment. This could not be farther from the truth, and the violence must decline on all sides. We need rebellions and riots as much as we need sit-ins and marches. We privilege peace, but peace alone has never gotten anyone free. We need nonviolent direct action and a diversity of tactics because we have lives, communities, and a planet worth fighting for. It is not a question of if abolition will happen. Abolitionism is being practiced every day. The question about total abolition is when. And we have to do everything that we can right now so that our future children, elders, and activists will not be behind when they fight for whatever abolition they need in their lifetimes. We have to decide if we will delay their liberation or if we will give them a head start by forging our freedom dreams right now. This concludes the reading of Becoming Abolitionists, Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom by Derricka Purnell. Copyright 2021 by Derricka Purnell. This book was read by Karen Chilton. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with Astra Publishing House, LTD, and was produced in 2021 by Blackstone Publishing, which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Publishing. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.downpour.com. Thank you. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.